Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, Centered from Reality Podcast. Sorry, we're a little bit late today on Monday. Busy day, but uh, we are here getting the episode out, so I hope everyone had a great weekend. Here it was, it was typical. Rained, hot, thunder, you know, all over the place. Got to see a little bit of everything. But other than that, life is, life is going pretty well. I honestly cannot believe it's almost mid-July. I always say that once uh, the 4th of July hits, everything else just kind of flies by. And I, I guess it's weird because usually during the summer I've been just working, uh, not doing classes. And doing classes, you just don't, it, it, it just feels different. It doesn't feel quite like summer. But I guess, you know, that's just the way life is. So got to get used to that. But anyways, first off, it looks like Cipollone is going to be, well, he's, he's already testified for the January 6th committee. But it looks like tomorrow during the hearings, they're going to play some of his testimony. I'm really curious to hear what he has to say, because he is the White House counsel. He was in the room during the chaos of January 6th. He definitely knows what Trump has to say. And so I I do wonder if this is going to help out or do anything or provide any more damning evidence. I think it's pretty clear at this point that Cipollone is not a huge Trump ally at this point. Like, I don't think he's going to fall on the hand grenade for Donald at this point. So we're going to have to see. It's going to be interesting. You know, there's always, <laughs> always something going on. I also, so I actually want to focus today on basically a new draft to create a new constitution in Chile and why I think it's an awful idea. And it's a learning moment for other places that say we need to recreate a constitution. But first, I wanted to start with Ukraine. It's looking like I guess you could say Russia's getting more desperate. Again, they keep putting out numbers. Now I've seen numbers like 20,000 to 25,000 Russian troops have been killed. I'm sure the Ukrainian numbers are getting extremely high as well. I mean, I just couldn't imagine that they're not. You know what I mean? And it is looking like Russia's getting more desperate or at least less discriminatory on what they're hitting and what targets they're going for. Because in the last two days, at least six people have been killed and dozens injured by a Russian strike on an industrial area in the city of Kharkiv, which is not doing well by everything I've read or gathered. Also, the death toll from a Russian attack on an apartment block in the Donetsk region has risen to about 30 people, and that's according to emergency services. I've seen that there's just awful fighting also going on throughout the country. I I was just reading right now that in the Slovensk region, there's also major advances of Russian forces, which is in the south of the country. Also, according to CNN, Antony Blinken has basically been in kind of harsh talks with China for supporting Russia after, uh, after he met with the Chinese counterpart Wang Yi for more than five hours on Saturday. And China's prospering off of this cheap gas. So is India. Also, the Nord Stream pipeline actually closed for maintenance today. Uh, And France and Germany, as I've already talked about before, are very weary over this reduced Russian oil supply, gas supply. And I I totally understand it. I can understand why they would be struggling with that. But again, things are not looking up. Also, I have seen some experts express concerns that these new bombings that we've seen may kind of signify that Russian forces are running low on their more precision-based technology, their precision missiles, and are now relying on less discriminatory measures, which means they'd be hitting more civilian targets, maybe accidentally even. Maybe they're aiming for one place and they end up hitting a hospital instead. Maybe they're aiming for 
some some military target and they hit a school. You know what I mean? Like if you're using really shitty technology and really inaccurate missiles, it's more likely you're going to hit civilian targets by accident. And <laughs> if this is the case, this actually does bring up some other worries. Basically, my biggest worry would be that they could accidentally hit a target across the border in Poland or Romania, right? We have to remember that Poland is really close to places like Lviv in, in Ukraine. And if the Russians are now just acting careless with, with the missiles, <laughs> there's a worry that they could get across the border and either hit some sort of military garrisons or some sort of NATO ally targets. And that would definitely escalate things. I really worry that we need to start finding some way to get talks going because we're in this game of chicken that is not good for the global economy. It's not good for fuel prices and it's just leading to a lot of death. And at this point, what for, you know what I mean? Like, and I, I still think we need to be there to defend our, our Ukrainian allies. And if they need help and if Russia keeps being aggressive, obviously we can't just go away and back out. But at the same time, like this is just getting ridiculous in my opinion. Also, I've been, I've been noticing that there's, it's wildfire season in California again. Uh, there's some beautiful sequoias in Yosemite Park that, you know, are some of the oldest trees in the world, very famous trees. And I guess there's a forest fire that is getting very close to them. So I, I was reading this morning that they've actually installed their own sprinkler system around some of these trees. And there's an old cabin deep in, deep in the woods that they've covered in a protective foil as well. Uh, never what you like to see, you know. I mean, it's kind of been a ticking time bomb in California for a long time. But, you know, I grew up going to Yosemite. I think Yosemite's – I'm more of a Yosemite guy than a Yellowstone guy. I think Yosemite's an amazing national park. And it's a shame to see that all these beautiful places are just being – more and more at risk and you just have to wonder like how much longer do some of these places have you know so I, I i've been following that a little bit too and it's 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 really really sad no good news there the last thing i will also add is that um looks like steve bannon is going to be testifying you know he's <laughs> he's <laughs> he's been all over the place he's pretty much been in contempt of congress for a while he's been avoiding any hearings. He's been avoiding testifying. I wonder what has changed. We're going to have to keep following that, but they must have, they must have really threatened him legally is my assumption. So fun stuff. We're going to have to keep that updated, but yeah, tomorrow the hearings are back. We'll have to see if there's any new revelations. Anyways, for the main segment, I wanted to talk about basically what happens when a country going through political crisis or upheaval or changes tries to redo its constitution. And I've never really been an advocate for rewriting a constitution, especially when a country is divided or very, very polarized or politically separated, because I think it's just going to lead to a document that is not realistic, is over idealistic, and also both sides can't agree on and might just divide society even more. Because basically, if you're in a highly polarized society, you cannot expect the people that are part of that polarization to make a rational and even document, I guess would be my argument. And before we get into this, basically, let's just say that Chile right now is working on drafting a new constitution, and it's a ludicrous document. But before we get into that, I want to give some background. On the old podcast, we covered the chaos basically that occurred in 2019 and went into 2020, especially once the pandemic happened. 
But basically in the fall of 2019, I think it was October. Yeah, I just got back from Italy back in those good times. I was living in Spain and uh, yeah, got back from Italy and saw that there were some pretty crazy protests going on. But there were nationwide protests basically on a myriad of issues. I would say the key ones, though, were involving transportation fares. There was a huge increase in transportation fares. And so people were going to metro stations. They were sneaking on. They were avoiding paying fees. And I remember reading that for a person making minimum wage, basically a week's worth of transportation to and from work could cost about 21% of their salary. Sorry, we got some, uh, some fire trucks out there. But anyways, yes, that's pretty bad. About a fifth of your salary was going towards transportation if you were making minimum wage. And so people were rightfully pissed off, right? And to go into more detail, the protests were, I guess generally you could say just about rising inequality that had really been left over from the years of the Pinochet dictatorship and probably some flaws in their constitutional system that was kind of created during the Pinochet dictatorship. And the system, for example, had a very inefficient healthcare system. Electricity prices were increasing, inflation was high, and this is way before COVID. Privatized water was expensive and led to accessibility issues. And there were assassinations even of environmental activists. The education system was very unequal, especially in rural areas, especially in indigenous areas. And it had a privatized pension system, which was actually left over from the Pinochet dictatorship. And I remember reading in The Economist back in 2019 that most retired teachers, for example, were receiving less than $300 a month. So, you know, it's not enough to survive on. So basically, this caused many people to keep working into their 80s, which I don't think anyone should have to do. Now, if you love your job and want to keep working, that's one thing. But I think it's just sacrilegious and depressing to force people to work into those years just to make ends meet. And so, yeah, basically, people were really angry. And this led to some of the largest protests in Latin America. And the protests came into international news because they became fairly violent. And of course, the government have had a very heavy-handed approach. And while the people started with just the typical forms of protest, they were also met with violent responses such as tear gas, pellet guns, rubber bullets, violent arrests and beatings. A lot of people were in the hospital from rubber bullets. There were a few deaths. It just didn't look good at all, especially from a country that had a military dictatorship for over a decade, right? And of course, this was even made worse when the president, who has resigned since, obviously this is three years, four years ago almost now, he was accused basically of dodging millions of dollars in taxes over 30 years and he was corrupt. You know, everyone's poor and struggling in the country while he's dodging taxes and living a lavish lifestyle. He responded to these growing cur <laughs> these, these responding protests by sending the military to the streets and imposing a curfew. So it was a shit show, and this was rightfully a bad image, like I said, for the Chilean people seeing the military in the streets because of the parallels from the 1973 coup, where Allende was... Well, I think he killed himself, but where Allende was thrown out of power and the military took over, and it was a really ugly political upheaval for a long time. And of course, you know, the United States bolstered Pinochet. But that's a whole other story. We're not going to get into that. But to add just a little bit more context, maybe on why these protests got so crazy, Gini, sorry, the Gini Index, which measures inequality in the world, 
found that Chile ranks as the most unequal country when they were compared to a group of the 30 wealthiest nations in the world. Now, there's a lot of inequality around the world, but Chile apparently ranks in the top, <laughs> the top few. And apparently in 2006, the richest 20% in Chile earned 10 times more than the poorest 20%, according to a government survey. And we have to remember there's a lot of rural areas that have never really got the services that they need, especially when the system that was really bolstered under, under Pinochet did not work to help that at all. And so, yeah, things have been bad in Chile. And this kind of catches us up to the recent news events, basically. So back in March of 2022, I believe it was March, there was the recent election of a guy who has basically promised to change the country and fight inequality. His name is Gabriel Boric Font, and he is the current president of Chile. And yeah, like I said, he's been serving since March 11th of, of this year, 2022. Now, this guy is interesting because he was a pro progressive student activist who led movements on campus. And he's definitely what I would call a leftist, not just a progressive, but definitely a leftist. And, you know, he's become very popular and rightfully so, probably because of just the political and economic situation inside of Chile. He's also the youngest president in Chilean history. He's 36 years old, and he kind of rose to power. I don't know. I'm, I'm not super versed on all this, but he rose to power leading a lot of student movements during the early 2010s, and he was part of one massive movement that basically paralyzed Santiago with protests over inequality, and a lot of these same tactics that he popularized were also in the 2019 protests, which eventually caused the downfall of that center-right government. And many of his demands were the same ones that eventually have become addressed. So he, you know, he was involved in politics since the 2010s and slowly has risen to popularity. And he's interesting because now he has a national platform. He's the president. And while he's a leftist, he also is somewhat of a small government leftist, which is kind of interesting. The, the Guardian has an article on him from a few months ago that writes that Boric has repeatedly said that as part of his ambition to decentralize Chile, he hopes to leave the presidency with less power than what he inherited. And I'm going to get into some of the contradictions of that later based on the Constitution again, and which is quite ludicrous, but it is interesting. But this gets to my criticism of what is happening now. So basically, after the protests, the center-right party that was governing made an agreement to start drafting a new constitution. And in theory, this makes sense because the old constitution was adopted in 1980 under Augusto Pinochet, who was no democratic hero. So it's almost ironic that the constitution to this day, though it's been amended a lot of times, is still the same one that when he was in power because a lot of people disappeared. A lot of people died. He didn't like opposition. Allende and all the other leftists were demonized. Like, it was not an open society. And so basically, a lot of critics have argued through the years that this constitution was flawed, and it was part of the reasons why the country was struggling to evolve. So they eventually found a compromise to draft a new constitution. But this is where I pretty much, I agree with probably the need to make a new constitution in this case. But the, but the way they did it and the way the Constitution's been created so far is exactly an argument for why it probably doesn't work in a divided modern era. From what I've gathered, so in 2020, there was an assembly of 155 people that was elected to basically draft this document. 
But one of the problems was kind of from the beginning, because a lot of the people chosen were not actually from established parties, they were not politicians, but they were from social movements a lot like the current president. And so it was people that had more of a social cause than an actual democratic cause. And I think that from the beginning was kind of where the first issues started. So basically, there were a lot of activists that were highly involved in supporting the protests, along with progressives, and, and some on the other side as well. Believe me, it wasn't just progressives. But The Economist has a great article out this week that discusses how, in quotes, the final result of their haggling was released on July 4th. It is absurdly long, with 388 articles. It is also fiscally irresponsible and sometimes dotty. The article, the article goes on to say that Chile's old constitution was not perfect. Indeed, it's been amended nearly 60 times. But compared with its proposed replacement, it's a paragon of clarity. So it's never good when the one that came out during the fascist military dictatorship is seen as the paragon of clarity compared to this new one. Never a great sign. So this is mainly because the draft, in my opinion, and from what I've read on a myriad of sources here, is a wish list of progressive goals. And it's really just not practical or realistic. And I want to go over the cons first. And then there are a few things that I think are positive. But let's go through why I think this is a good example of during a divided and transformatory time, it's not a good idea to maybe draft a new constitution. So first, I've glanced over the document and read some papers on it. And probably my first criticism is just that the language is very confusing and vague and can be left up to who's ever reading it which is not good for creating a system around courts that need to uphold these rules and laws, right? Now, constitutions are vague. The United States Constitution is, in a sense, but it still has a framework that is up for interpretation. However, critics of this draft say that there are a lot of passages that are so vague that there will be decades of infighting over what they actually mean. And so this is not going to make the country more efficient or fight inequality it's going to actually probably see different groups fighting over what the Constitution's actually saying. And of course that happens in the United States. It happens in other places. But this sounds worse because of the vagueness, and we'll keep going in a moment on that. But another interesting part of this document is that it actually gives nature rights. Again, something very vague and hard to actually understand what they're getting at. But what this means is not clear to me, but it's going further than pushing for environmental protections and codifying that. And it's actually noting that nature has the same rights as a citizen. Again, I read, I read this part in Spanish, so maybe some of it was lost in the translation, but it is hard to understand what they're trying to get at with that, to say the least. And it, it just doesn't seem serious to me, I, I guess, would be the problem. Like, let's talk about the environment and protecting it instead of making nature have rights, because that's just, it's just ridiculous. Like, I'm sorry. Also, the document is heavily focused on gender, which is, you know, fine. I think we need to protect everyone, but the way it goes about it is annoying. It mentions the issue over 40 times, and something of note is that the draft mentions that court rulings, the police and this new national health care system they're wanting to begin is going to have to operate with an, in quotes, gender perspective. And, <laughs> of course, while the document mentions the need for a gender perspective, there's no definition of what that means, and it leaves it up to be interpreted by the reader. What does it mean by gender? There's probably, as we know in the United States and in a lot of places, there are a lot of different definitions of gender, depending where you fall on the political spectrum and where you fall in the culture war. So if you're going to 
talk about gender so frequently in this draft, you better clarify what you're meaning. And they don't. My next criticism is how it wants to deal with work and labor and the protection of job security. I will add that, of course, on paper, I support everyone's right to work. I actually like the growing support for unions in the United States. I, I think workers should be protected, but this draft seems to go too far. I'm going to read this passage from The Economist on this issue because I think it highlights very well what I'm talking about here. The Economist discusses how this draft, in quotes, gives trade unions the sole right to represent workers, guarantees them a say in corporate decision-making, and allows them to strike for any reason, not just those relating to work. It says that everyone has the right to work and that all forms of job security are prohibited. And as I mentioned earlier, this basically makes it impossible to remove or fire employees for any reason. And it just seems like it's trying to cover things that aren't even in the sphere of work, which gets very convoluted and lacks nuance and is complex. And it just seems like too extreme of protections as well. And also another criticism is one that I think may be the most egregious here. And it's that landowners and farmers may lose property rights to, to resources and water, which is on their land. So it's basically removing private property or private property on the land that someone else owns. So this would make these public goods, basically, which in a sense, there are reports out of South America where the privatization of water has really hurt vulnerable communities. I think that's a conversation that needs to be had. But it looks like they want to... They want, to take, they want to take some of these resources from landowners and then compensate them in a very obscure way that, as the article I'm reading here writes, it is not based on market prices or competitive prices, but instead, again, what Congress deems as just and necessary. And to me, this is, again, vague, and it could almost become authoritarian and problematic because it leaves, basically, it leaves the ability to define this up to those in power. The discretion is up to those in power, and that puts a lot of trust in government, and I don't know if I have that much trust in government. Also, okay, another con. <laughs> then there is the economic side of this. Basically, the Constitution draft here would put the country into more debt. It would not be good for the economy, which, you know, would not be good for fighting inequality, and inflate, especially with how the world economy is going right now. But the draft discusses creating several new agencies, including a new healthcare system that is integrated with the government. The document says that the government will fund it, but again, there's no details on how they will fund it. Also, the state will um, oversee housing, but as I'm sure you can guess, there are no details on how to do that. Another, I think, part of it that's kind of troubling for democratic institutions is it's looking to erode checks and balances that were apparently very fundamental to the original Constitution, and I think they're necessary for a democracy. Just to say, when the Pinochet-era Constitution has more checks on power than this new one, maybe you should look in the mirror and second-guess some of these decisions. But the, the Economist article writes here in quotes, "...a new council would have power over all judicial nominations. Previously, the Supreme Court, the President, the Court of Appeals and the Senate all had a combined and shared role in this. Again, I don't think putting one new council in charge of all of this appointment process is a good idea. It just seems very anti-democratic. Now, I must be fair, I guess, <laughs> that there are a few admirable parts of this constitutional draft. 
first, I, I do like what it wants to do with indigenous rights. The Chilean government has been having some issues for a long time, actually pretty much for the entire history of the nation, with an indigenous people called the Mapuche, who are in south-central Chile, as well as other groups as well. But this is the main one that I always think of. And the Constitution is looking to give these groups more autonomy. Also, it's going to allow groups like the Mapuche to be taught in their own language which I think is good to let them do that. But then at the same time, you have to say, is this going to divide the society even more when you have people learning in a different language? I'm not, I'm not an authority on that. I don't know. But I guess it's good to give these indigenous groups their autonomy. Something else I do like about the Constitution as well is that it wants to send power back to regions instead of the central government. It would deregulate some programs too. Now, based on all the cons I told you about, that's almost kind of contradictory, isn't it? Because the Constitution, all the issues I had were these vague centralized programs the Constitution also wants, such as, you know, the health care and news agencies and all that stuff. But then again, they also want to cut government power while they also have these new vague programs. Again, it doesn't make sense, and I think it would just be rife with potential abuse, honestly. That's what it seems like would happen to me. And so, yeah, that's, that's what's happening right now. Again, it hasn't been passed yet. I haven't seen any new updates on it since this article came out and since I've read some other articles on it. But the reason I bring this up is because I think it's a good case study and lesson for others that live in constitutional systems. Because this is purely anecdotal, but I do have friends on both sides of the political spectrum, on both sides of the extreme in the United States, who want to rewrite the Constitution or at least reform it in a more significant way because they seem to believe it's either outdated or they don't agree with the values anymore and they think times change, we need a new document. And I can understand the, the rationale behind that, of course, but my worry is that some of, their, some of their ideas are so extreme that I wonder if the Constitution that they would want written would actually be better than our current one. Or would it just be idealistic, vague, and actually lead to even more erosion of our society? I'm not sure if I want reform that could be up to the whims of modern change and public opinion. You don't want public opinion and outrage culture and the culture wars driving a new constitution. And in a sense, I see that's what happened in the Chilean one. Not completely, but partially. Because this Chilean draft is based on drives for social changes, vague yet extreme views on how the government should fix long-lasting problems. And sometimes, like, it's just not that simple. And the University of Chicago Law School, that is, yeah, yeah, let me check, yes, yes, the law school, has a really good point on this issue. It has an article that discusses why people should be hesitant to rewrite a constitution, and I kind of wish some of these people in Chile at least read these things, so if you are going to rewrite it, you at least know why people are hesitant. So in quotes here, if not written well, a constitution can have a very quick shelf life, and more so, if it is written during a time of division and partisanship, it could be hard to take the same meaning away from the document, and both sides may have incentive to hide information or keep it vague. As I have mentioned, this definitely is what happened with the Chilean draft. The vagueness seems to be prevalent, and it could really backfire, especially if you have someone who disagrees with your values come into power. You want to protect future as well as present, right? And yes... Anyways, the article also suggests that, or sorry, notes that in quotes here, trying to address the problem of incomplete information through drafting flexible framework constitutions 
may exasperate strategic problems of hidden information. Sides may not be upfront about the why aspect in the construction. This could make it harder for courts to carry out policy. And yeah, I mean, I think that's also a relevant issue is basically like you have these vague terms and basically like giving nature human rights or talking about having a gender perspective in your police and healthcare system, but not identifying it. This is going to cause courts to not know because of this hidden information and this flexible framework, and it's not going to be useful for a constitution. I just, again, I will hit it across the head again, is you don't want to create a constitution during internal division, desperation, and crises. This, I don't think it will lead to something better. And as we have seen in Chile, I just can't imagine, you know, say like AOC being effective at making a constitution for all Americans. I also couldn't imagine Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley doing any better. I also want to add one more insight from the University of Chicago because this piece was really well written. And like I've mentioned, I think it just brings up some good points on this. But in this different article, it talks about what makes a constitution effective and long lasting. I'm going to read some of the criteria. And then why don't you think if the Chilean draft meets this criteria? So. It says here, enduring constitutions share three important qualities that date back to the circumstances of constitutional birth. First, durable constitutions tend to emerge under conditions characterized by an open, participatory process, conditions that encourage enforcement of constitutional terms. Second, durable constitutions tend to cover a wide range of topics, in inducing the parties to reveal information and to invest in the negotiation process. Third, Durable constitutions tend to be flexible ones, and that they provide reasonable mechanisms by which to amend and interpret the text to adjust the changing con uh, conditions. Now, I liked that second one where it talks about inducing parties to reveal information and invest in the negotiation process. That's the key part where I think if you had a polarized society try to draft a constitution, I don't think the parties involved would have any incentive to actually invest in negotiation or to reveal information to one another or agree on terms. It's easier to keep it vague and use the flexibility of the document to your advantage. And I think that's why my concerns would be real with what's happening with the Chilean one. And so, again, now, <laughs> you know, one of the criteria for an effective constitution is that it needs to be able to adjust to changing conditions. And ours has done that relatively well. But I would also argue we've, we've kind of realized the... The constitutional convention process is very hard. It doesn't happen. And also the amendment process has not happened in a long time. So our constitution is not as flexible as we sometimes have hoped. But anyways, I just think, I just think during these times we need to be careful on thinking that it would just be easy to throw out the constitution and start over. And that's kind of the same with the people who are like, oh, we need a revolution or we need to just completely reset everything. It's like, shut up. I don't think you understand what that would actually mean. And I don't think when we come from the ashes, the people that would want to run society would do a better job or should do a better job. And so, yeah, I, I think we just need to remember that the radical rhetoric sometimes is insane. And good luck to Chile. Um, hopefully there's some reforms made to this current draft, but we'll have to see. Keep you guys updated. But anyways, I'll be back on Wednesday. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, all that jazz, as always. And I have to say, I have the TV on in the background here. I just um, looks like a. Well, I don't know what's up with the airline industry. Well, I kind of do know what's up with the airline industry. It's 
a mixture of corrupt airline companies. The secretary or the transportation department has not really pushed back on them. And, you know, we have the pandemic shortage where the bailouts were supposed to, you know, help keep the airline industries afloat. Instead, they just got people to retire based on loopholes, blah, blah, blah. I could go on all day, but I'm watching, I guess, a Sprint Airlines plane caught on fire landing in Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia. It's just like every day I see something involving flights. and I'm like, God, I don't want to fly right now. But anyways, have a good rest of your day. Bye-bye.